This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the Nocturnal Reader's Box. If you love horror and sci-fi, the Nocturnal Reader's Box is for you. Two novels every month delivered directly to your door, along with horror or sci-fi-themed bookmarks, art pieces, and more. Visit thenocturnalreadersbox.com and find out what's in next month's box. Get 15% off your first six-month subscription by using the promo code WEIRD15. That's all one word, WEIRD15. Sign up now at thenocturnalreadersbox.com or click the link in the show notes. Greystone Mansion, owned by the city of Beverly Hills for many years, is a place that is instantly recognizable for those who love movies and television. It has appeared in so many productions that the grand staircase at the entrance is said to be the most filmed and photographed stairs in Hollywood. But no thriller ever filmed there can boast the plot twists of the real-life murder mystery that occurred in the house in 1929. It began with two bodies in the bedroom, and it's never ended because the crime has never been solved, leaving a lingering mystery and a haunting behind. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, weirdos. This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss future uploads. And if you're already a fan and subscriber of the show, please share it with others to help bring them into the Weird Darkness as If you're a politics junkie, you need to be listening to the Election Ride Home podcast. Every day at 5 p.m., former This American Life contributor Chris Higgins reports from the campaign trail. Who's up? Who's down? What issues are getting traction and what do the polls say? Search your podcast app now for Ride Home and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast. Well, coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness... A young girl goes for a walk in the woods and suddenly finds she's not alone. Though he was born into a Roman Catholic family, Adolfo Constanzo quickly fell into alternative religion, focusing on black magic and the occult. But then he went even darker than that. In April of 2007, a rash of sightings were reported of a strange creature prowling around the outskirts of Stafford in the UK. Is it possible that there is finally evidence of real werewolves in the 21st century? Records indicate that the man known as the Comte de Saint-Germain was born in the late 1600s, early 1700s, but reports by other well-known figures in history have told of a similar man that can be traced back to the time of Christ. This man was known by famous figures such as Casanova, Madame de Pompadour, Voltaire, King Louis XV, Catherine the Great, Anton Mesmer, and many more. Hollywood has used the Greystone Mansion in numerous movies and TV shows, but would the actors be so comfortable filming there 
if they knew its murderous and haunting history. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. The sprawling Greystone Mansion in Beverly Hills, California was built in 1928 by Edward L. Doheny, an oil tycoon and rival of John D. Rockefeller. The mansion, designed by Gordon Kaufman, who had also built the Hoover Dam and the iconic Los Angeles Times building, cost over $4 million, which made it the most expensive home in Southern California at the time. Doheny himself never lived there he'd had the house built as a gift for his son, Edward Ned Doheny, Jr. But Ned didn't get to enjoy it for long. On February 16, 1929, just five months after he moved in with his wife Lucy and their five children, he was found dead in a guest bedroom in the east wing of the mansion. He was not alone. Also lying dead in the bedroom was his longtime friend and assistant, Hugh Plunkett. The events of the night were pieced together from Ned's wife, Lucy. She said that Plunkett had let himself into the house with his own key, as he always did, and went to the east wing. She had not been alarmed by anything until she heard a single gunshot. Lucy called, not the police, but the family doctor, E.C. Fishbaugh, and together they had gone to the east wing. As they approached the bedroom, they saw Plunkett standing in the hallway, holding a gun and looking upset. He immediately rushed back into the bedroom and another shot was fired. When Lucy and Dr. Fishball entered that room, they discovered the bodies of both men. When the police arrived, veteran detectives became suspicious of this story. The witnesses seemed to have rehearsed their stories and the sequence of events seemed questionable. Why had Lucy called the doctor first, not the police? Why did the bodies appear to have been moved? Why were the police not called until almost 2 a.m. when the shots had been fired between 11 and 11.30 p.m.? If Plunkett had committed suicide, how had he managed to shoot himself in the back of the head? But these questions were not asked for long. Within a few days, the official conclusion was that things had occurred just as Lucy had claimed, a murder-suicide, and the case was closed. A few detectives were unhappy about the decision, but the orders had come down from the top and any further investigation was stopped. Doheny and Plunkett were buried close to each other at Forest Lawn, and that should have been the end of the story. But rumors still swirled around town about what really happened on the night of February 16th. Some made note of the fact that Doheny was buried at Forest Lawn, a secular cemetery, even though he was a Catholic. His family made large donations to the church every year, and the only thing that would have prevented his burial in a Catholic cemetery was if he had committed suicide. So, whose body was actually found first? What really happened that night? One unfounded rumor claimed that Ned and Hugh were lovers and that their deaths were the result of a fight about their relationship. In the 1920s, even in Hollywood, such relationships would have been kept secret. 
This story gained a lot of attention, with some alleging that Lucy had walked in on the two men and shot them both herself. In truth, though, this theory likely had nothing to do with what occurred that night. Around the time of Ned's death, his father, Doheny Sr., was embroiled in the Teapot Dome scandal. This bribery incident that took place during the administration of President Warren G. Harding and involved Secretary of the Interior Albert Bacon Fall, who leased Navy Petroleum Reserves at Teapot Dome in Wyoming and two other locations in California to private oil companies at low rates without competitive bidding. One of those companies was owned by Doheny, and in 1929, Ball was found guilty of accepting a $100,000 bribe from him. Both Ned and Hugh Plunkett have been implicated in the case, and it's most likely that the murder-suicide, regardless of who killed whom, was the result of a growing fear about their illegal business practices and the very real threat of prison time they were now facing. One of the men killed the other and then turned the gun on himself. Lucy Doheny and the trusted family physician were left to try and salvage some shred of decency for the family out of the entire mess, or at least that's what may have happened. In truth, we will never know. But whatever happened that night, Greystone remains haunted after all of these years. The lingering spirit is not either of the men, but Ned's wife, Lucy. Lucy managed to weather the scandal of her husband's death, and a few years later, she remarried. She and her new husband, financier Lee Batson, continued to live in the mansion raising her children. The couple later built and moved into a new home nearby, and Lucy sold the bulk of the Greystone estate in 1954. The mansion itself was sold in 1965 to a Chicago-based developer who never lived there. Instead, he rented it to movie studios. Later, the city of Beverly Hills bought the mansion, leasing it for a time to the American Film Institute, then turning it into a park. The mansion now plays host to private parties, and it's often featured in television shows and movies, including the critically acclaimed 2007 film about the early oil industry, There Will Be Blood. Lucy spent the rest of her life in her new home near Greystone. Towards the end, she lived to be 100 and died in 1993. She would get dressed up each day and then sit in a wing-backed chair near the front door with her purse clenched in her hands. She was apparently waiting for something but she refused to say what it was that she was waiting for. She never spoke publicly about what happened that deadly night in what the newspapers called the Palace of Grief, and perhaps that is why her ghost refuses to rest. Over the last two decades, there have been frequent reports of a ghostly woman who wanders the halls of Greystone, leaving traces of lilac perfume in her wake. Perhaps she still has a story to tell about a dark night in 1929, but whether she will ever tell it is a mystery as chilling as the one surrounding the deaths of the two men that occurred that night. A small, modest old village right in the heart of Norway, Heidal. That's where I'm from. As a 14-year-old girl, it's safe to say there wasn't much to do. I'd either watch TV, climb a tree, build a treehouse, 
visit friends whenever I could, or go for a walk. I didn't have much in the ways of technology, so I found my fun in better ways, like walking, the last of which I did several times a week. My walks were my favorite thing to do. It got me away from my brothers as I was the only girl. I could have some me time. I'd walk along the road, carry my disc man in my belt, and sing along to the only CD I had. I didn't even have to worry about someone hearing my awful voice because if someone else did turn up, they'd either be in a car or I'd see them come walking long before we'd be close enough to greet each other, therefore giving me time to shut up. It was a lovely day in July. The sun was hot. The breeze was mild. The skies were blue and clouds barely existed. I reckon it was the good weather, in combination with Shania Twain's beautiful voice, that made me daydream and suddenly realize how far I'd walked. Luckily, I realized this just before the scarier part of the road began. There were trees on either side, and from that point the woods were thicker, darker, people would be even rarer, and my great-grandfather once encountered a scary animal there. I can't remember if it was a wolf or some other animal, but the forest is no longer its home. I never walked alone once I got to that point. It wasn't so much the woods as it was what could be hiding in them. I remember standing there with my music turned off, just staring down the road, imagining wolves and bears. I turned around, picked up my pace, and soon found myself on more safer grounds again. From this moment, life will go on, Shania sang in my ears as I drifted into daydreaming, again barely noticing my pace or where I was. Pretty soon, I started singing, too. I could hear myself through my earphones, and I remember thanking the heavens that there were no people around to hear me. On repeat, I sang that one song to myself. The more I sang it, the better I felt, the better I got, and thereby, of course, I made an attempt to sound better, too, including volume. After a good while of walking, the sun was still hot, the breeze still mild, the day still beautiful, but I began feeling like I wasn't alone anymore. The hairs on my neck began standing up, and through all the peace and bird songs, I started feeling uneasy. So I did what anyone would do. I glanced back, quickly and discreetly, looking over my shoulder. About a good twenty meters behind me, there walked a man clearly of an older generation. I remember this so vividly because his entire appearance struck me as old-fashioned. Never had I seen him before, either. Not in the grocery store, not at the gas station, not at the diner, and I sure as hell had never seen him on that road before. As I walked that same road almost every day, I should have met him a long time ago, but I had never seen him. He was bald on top of the head, yet had a very white, long beard. It reached almost down to his chest. He had a white sweater, suspenders, dark gray and old pants, and black worn shoes. He walked slightly bent forward with his hands folded behind his back and from what I could tell, he had his eyes on the road, not me. But this did not make me feel any better. I felt so embarrassed. I had been singing so loudly and really pretended that I was Shania Twain and I knew that whilst I could hear myself, I could also hear the music, whereas this old man, who must have been walking behind me for some time, could only hear me. Just me and the birds. 
This was exactly the kind of thing I never thought would happen and now it had. The only reassurance I had was the fact that I could see my driveway now. It wasn't far ahead. Without singing another note, I picked up my pace, yet I made sure not to look as though I was in a hurry in any way. The last thing I wanted now was to be outed as a runner or a chicken by an old man. After having walked for a bit, I couldn't help myself but to glance back over my shoulder at him once more to see how much space I'd managed to create between us. Perhaps it was only my imagination, or this guy played a game on me, but I had surely walked faster, and his pace had not changed at all, yet somehow the distance was still the same. I turned around and kept walking until I reached my driveway. A few meters down my driveway, I glanced back up towards the road. I could still see far down each side of it, but what made me stop was the fact that the old man was no longer there. Somewhat hesitantly and overly curious as to how this could be, I took a few steps up toward the road again to see if perhaps he had turned around and walked to the other side of the road, where the trees previously had blocked my view. But no matter the direction I looked, he was nowhere to be seen. I imagined that he must have jumped behind a bush to spy at me, or he was really fast for being so old. I didn't wait around to see if he showed up again. Instead, I went down the road and back home. I told my grandmother about how I was singing and some old guy had heard me, about how embarrassed I was. I was seated in an old brown leather chair in my grandmother's living room when I told her about it. Everything from the singing, the uneasy feeling, the man and his appearance, and how he was gone all of a sudden. The more I spoke of this experience, the more she seemed to find it special. It was as though my grandmother wanted to comfort me, and she tried to do so by telling me that I was not the first to tell her about this man. She had heard a similar story many, many, many years previously. I could feel my face twist into a horror expression. Sure, I'd seen spirits and dealt with them before, but this time was so very different. This time I had no way of telling him apart from the living. I truly believed it was one of the elders of our village that I'd just never met before, and one of the reasons I told my grandmother about it at all was because I thought she could tell me who it might be. My father once saw him too, she said. I was, of course, instantly eager to hear more, as always. This was one of her stories that I had not heard before. When my grandmother was a young girl like myself, they lived up in her old childhood home which lies beyond the scarier part of the road, as I mentioned at the beginning of this story. Her father often walked when going to the grocery store or had other errands to do as they didn't have cars. It was during winter, she said. Her father was walking home one late evening about the time it got dark outside. Whilst walking, at some point on the road, just as it had with me, he noticed that he wasn't alone. His company, however, was in front of him. She said her father saw an old man walking slowly, dragging a sleigh behind him. There were no homes for a good while yet, so this stranger and my father would be sharing the road, and he thought they might as well keep each other company, grandmother told me. By this point, I had nearly forgotten how we got into this subject. I was busy imagining everything she said. Her father had spoken up and asked the old man if they could walk together, but the old man didn't turn around, didn't answer, didn't stop, 
So her father picked up his pace a little and spoke louder, repeating his question, still with no response. He didn't give up, and for each time he spoke up he picked up his pace, trying to get closer to ensure the old man would hear him. It would have been nice with company, but as I'd experienced as well, it didn't matter how quickly my great-grandfather had walked, the old man's pace remained the same, and so did the distance between them. Eventually, great-grandfather gave up and walked the rest of his journey home, staring at the old man's back in quiet. The latter continued along the road past great-grandfather's home, and he could see the old man slowly vanishing into the dark the further away he got until he was completely gone. He thought it was strange, but he didn't think of it or tell any of us about it until the next morning, grandmother said. Apparently, he had gone out the next morning. There had been no snowfall during the night, and when he walked up to the road, he could clearly see his own footsteps from the previous night. But it wasn't so much what was there as what was not. The tracks of the old man's boots and his sleigh were nowhere to be seen. I have walked that road plenty of times after, and when using a bicycle I have felt brave enough to venture farther than where my walks would stop. Into the scarier parts of the road and all the way up to where my grandmother's childhood home used to be. Relatives live there now, in new houses and a little higher up the field from where her old torn-down home once laid. I'd stop and look. Imagine all the stories grandmother has told me about the things she and her family experienced there. It's hard to believe that something so wicked and strange could occur at places so beautiful and seemingly peaceful. Keep listening, there's more weird darkness to come. Well, I made a mistake yesterday. I forgot to take my vitamins in the morning, and when I forget to take my vitamins, I forget to take my meds. When I forget to take my meds and vitamins, that also means I forget to take my dawn to dusk. And so, in the middle of the afternoon, as I should have expected, I crashed. I had to take a nap. In fact, I took a four-hour nap because I just couldn't stay awake. And of course, that put me way behind on doing everything I needed to do. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about if you are a busy individual as well. Fortunately, today I did remember to take my dawn to dusk, and I feel completely fine. As busy as I am, I really need to remember to take my dawn to dusk. If you'd like to try it out for yourself, I guarantee you're not going to be disappointed. I've been using it now for several months, and I definitely feel the difference on days that I do use it and the days that I don't. If you want to check it out for yourself, we have created a special page just for Weird Darkness fans. Go to BrickHouseWeird.com. It's a special page designed just for you, my weirdo family. BrickHouseWeird.com. You can save 10% off Dawn to Dusk if you use the promo code weird at checkout. Again, that's BrickHouseWeird.com. That'll take you immediately to the Dawn to Dusk page. And then to save 10%, use the promo code WEIRD. Adolfo Constanzo was born in Miami in 1962. His mother, a widowed immigrant from Cuba, 
moved to Puerto Rico with her infant son to marry her second husband before the family moved back to Miami in 1972. Little did she know that her infant son would grow up to become a drug lord and cult-leading mass murderer. Voodoo and Catholicism have always had an interesting relationship, and although Adolfo Costanzo was baptized in Roman Catholic tradition, like most other immigrants in the Little Havana neighborhood where he lived, strange rumors started swirling about the young boy and his family. Local legend claims his mother and grandmother were both priestesses in the Santeria religion, a blend of Afro-Cuban religion and certain elements of Catholicism popular throughout the Caribbean. When Constanzo was 14, he became the apprentice of a local sorcerer who had made himself rich through his dealings with superstitious local drug dealers. It was supposedly this sorcerer who introduced Constanzo to Palomeombe, the darker side of Santeria. Shortly after that, his neighbors began finding small, dead animals on their doorsteps. After spending his teenage years being schooled in sorcery and arrested several times for shoplifting, Constanzo's good looks brought him to Mexico City for modeling work. It was there he recruited his first occult disciples. Jorge Montes and Martin Quintana were both his first followers and his lovers, having been lured in by Constanzo's powerful charisma and a curiosity about the occult. Constanzo would play upon these dual traits and seduce many of his other disciples in Mexico City's gay neighborhood, the Zona Rosa, where he read tarot cards. Adolfo Constanzo set up shop in Mexico City permanently in 1984 and worked on establishing his reputation as a powerful padrino in the city. Mexican drug dealers presented the perfect combination of superstition and bloodlust upon which Constanzo could prey. For sums of up to $4,500, he would perform ceremonies that involved the sacrifices of animals that he guaranteed would protect the dealers during their illicit activities. Constanzo's diary later outlined the exact prices customers paid per animal, from $6 for a simple rooster all the way up to $3,100 for lion cubs. One prominent dealer racked up a $40,000 bill with Constanzo over a three-year period. As the sorcerer lured in more and more impressive clientele, including not just powerful cartel leaders but fashion models, nightclub performers, and a few federal policemen, he needed to put on more impressive spectacles to satisfy them. Constanzo and his followers had been raiding cemeteries for actual human bones for some time, but in time even they would not be enough. By 1987, Adolfo Constanzo had come a long way from reading tarot cards in the Zona Rosa. The big money he was getting from rich clients afforded him a new condominium complete with a garage full of luxury cars. The sorcerer had also taken advantage of his police and cartel contacts to start dealing himself for some illicit supplementary income. Adolfo Constanzo's most important client was the Calzada family, leaders of one of the country's biggest cartels. The relationship between the padrino and the dealers started out as it usually did, with Costanzo providing protection spells for large sums of money. As time went on and the Calzadas became more and more powerful, Costanzo became convinced that their good fortunes were the result of his black magic and insisted upon being given a position of power with the cartel. 
when the cartel leader refused Costanzo's demand, he and six other family members suddenly disappeared. Naganga, or blood cauldron, is an important part of Pilomayombe. Worshippers believe that by placing bones and blood in an iron cauldron, they can summon spirits to do their bidding. When Mexican police found the bodies of the missing members of the Calzada family, the mutilated corpses were missing more than a few parts. Costanzo had taken the fingers, toes, hearts, testicles, spines, and brains from his former partners and added them all to his own Naganga in hopes of strengthening his dark powers. To this day, it's unknown how many human victims Adolfo Costanzo and his disciples fed to their Naganga. Twenty-three have been officially documented, but police believe that a series of mutilated bodies found in the area and during the time the Padrino was active there may also be the handiwork of the cult. Costanzo's victims were small-time crooks, transvestites from the Zonarosa, or even members of his own circle who disobeyed him. Since most of the human sacrifices came from the society's dark underbelly, the murders flew under the radar and the full number of homicides may never be known. Costanzo's followers worshipped him like a god. They did not hesitate to find victims for him or even mutilate one of their own. When the Pied Piper of Death demanded the sacrifice of an Anglo one night in 1989, they did not hesitate to grab one of the many American college students who had crossed the border from Texas during his spring break. This time, the padrino had overreached himself. The student they had snatched, Mark Kilroy, was not a lone drifter whose disappearance would go unnoticed. His friends and family alerted both American and Mexican authorities, triggering a massive manhunt that would eventually bring out Constanzo's downfall. When the Mexican police busted a small-time marijuana dealer that April, he led them to a small ranch where, as the police had expected, they found a cache of drugs. What the police did not expect was the small, windowless shack on the ranch property that one would later describe as a human slaughterhouse. They had accidentally stumbled upon Adolfo Costanzo's Naganga, still filled with bits and pieces of his victims the horribly mutilated bodies of Kilroy and the others were buried in shallow graves on the grounds. The police burned the shack to the ground and called in a priest to perform a purification rite. The symbolic destruction of the heart of Adolfo Constanzo's dark powers preceded the Padrino's actual downfall. Mexican authorities tracked him down a couple of weeks later and surrounded him in his Mexico City apartment. The cult leader eluded justice until the very end ordering one of his faithful companions to shoot him before the police could take him away. Canic Chase is a large, densely woodland area which has become known as one of the UK's most active paranormal hotspots. In recent times, there have been reports of werewolves, UFOs, and ghosts by the local residents. On April 26, 2007, the local Stafford Post newspaper ran the following story. A rash of sightings of a werewolf-type creature prowling around the outskirts of Stafford have prompted a respected Midlands paranormal group to investigate. West Midlands Ghost Club says they've been contacted by a number of shocked residents 
who saw what they claimed to be a hairy, wolf-type creature walking on its hind legs around the German War Cemetery, just off Camp Road, in between Stafford and Cannock. Several of the witnesses claimed the creature sprang up on its hind legs and ran into the nearby bushes when it was spotted. The newspaper continued. Nick Duffy of West Midlands Ghost Club said the stories of werewolf sightings in Chase area were something that he had encountered before. He said the first person to contact us was a postman who told us he had seen what he thought was a werewolf on the German War Cemetery site. He said he was over there on a motorbike and saw what he believed was a large dog. When he got closer, the creature got on its hind legs and ran away. The Post quoted Duffy as adding that, I've spoke to many witnesses, and I know when they are putting it on, but what struck me as strange about this was the way he told it. I'm in no doubt that he was telling the truth. The creature was also apparently spotted by a scout leader walking over the forest land earlier in April. The man, who the Post stated did not want to be named, said he saw what he initially believed was a large dog prowling by the bushes. It was only when he got into his car to drive away that he realized something strange about the animal. He said, it just looked like a huge dog, but when I slammed the door of my car, it reared up on its back legs and ran into the trees. It must have been about six or seven feet tall. I know it sounds absolutely mad, but I know what I saw. In recent years, there have been a high number of pet disappearances, especially in the area around the German War Cemetery, and it's certainly the case that the area has been the site of animal, particularly deer, mutilations over the past decade. Also in the news is a mysterious apparition which confronted a local woman on a lonely stretch of road. The apparition has been dubbed the Lady of the Chase. Linda has come forward to tell us her disturbing ghost story. I had what I could only describe as a totally surreal experience whilst driving across Canuck Chase last year, she said. I'd not been able to tell anyone about this apart from my partner. It was him who encouraged me to contact you following some of the reports you've made in your paper. Linda was returning home after visiting a friend in Pie Green near Canuck last November when she was confronted by the lady. It was about 11.30 p.m. and I had decided to take a shortcut across the chase as I neared Spring Slade Lodge I had to break hard as a person suddenly stood in the road. After Linda recovered from the shock of the near collision, she turned her attention to the figure in front of her car. In my headlights, the form was of a tall female, pale gray in color. She appeared to be naked but with no visible breasts or genitalia. Immediately I was drawn to her eyes, large, hypnotic eyes that totally transfixed me. I was in dread and unable to move a muscle. I was aware I was being mentally examined and there was nothing I could do to prevent this. After a couple of minutes, the figure turned and walked away into nearby woodland. It was only when she had disappeared that I could move again, Linda said. I accelerated away in panic. She told us she has not been able to drive across Canuck Chase since the incident and added, sometimes after a dream, I could see a vivid image of the woman's face with those staring eyes. I'm not a very good artist, but felt compelled to draw the face of this figure. I call her the Lady of the Chase. Was Linda's apparition really a ghost, or is it possible that what Linda saw was, in actual fact, an alien? Linda describes being mentally examined by the entity and being unable to move. These sensations are often reported by abductees. 
the figure also walked way into the nearby woodlands. Spirits usually just fade away. Canic Chase has long been popular with UFO enthusiasts. Just earlier this year, the MOD released previously top-secret files revealing the skies over Canic had been the subject of investigations after reports of strange lights hovering above the town. Between 1988 and the early 90s, a rash of sightings led to the period being known as the Staffordshire Flap. The most significant event during that time happened on May 16, 1988. Evidence suggests two UFOs, noticed by air traffic control at Birmingham Airport, descended to a height of 1,000 feet. Dozens of witnesses, including police officers, watched in awe as the two shapes moved across the sky. After swooping and climbing maneuvers, the objects vanished in the blink of an eye. The closest encounter for Chase folk, however, is shrouded in mystery. Older residents remember military cordons and roadblocks following the crash landing of a craft on the chase in 1964. The object, tracked by British, Russian, and U.S. intelligence, broke into several pieces, with some coming down in the woods outside of Canuck. Locals traveling across the chase were told to find other routes, while some witnesses reported seeing a craft being loaded onto a transport truck. Even at the time, there were accusations of a cover-up. The residents were told to forget what they had seen and that it was a matter of national security. Records indicate that the man known as the Count of Saint-Germain was born in the late 1600s or early 1700s, but reports by other well-known figures in history have told of a similar man that can be traced back to the time of Christ. This man was known by famous figures such as Casanova, Madame de Pompadour, Voltaire, King Louis XV, Catherine the Great, Anton Mesmer, and many more. While most accounts can't agree on how many events in history he haunted, some say he was at the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine. Others say that he was present at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Most will agree that in the 1600s, the Count was an alchemist, and this is where he becomes more well-known. Now, if you're familiar with Harry Potter, you might have heard the term called the Philosopher's Stone which was one of the main goals of alchemy. The elusive search for immortality, something is thought the Count achieved. Saint Germain was out in high society Europe in 1742. He was described as vastly knowledgeable in the sciences and history, well-spoken in over six languages, including French, German, Dutch, Spanish, Portuguese, Russian, and English, along with some familiarity in Chinese, Latin, Arabic, Ancient Greek, and even Sanskrit. The first record of his suspected immortality was at a party at the manor of Madame de Pompadour, then mistress of King Louis XV of France. The year was 1760, and a confused Countess von Gregory approached the man, thinking it was the son of the man she knew in 1710, whom she knew to be the Count of Saint-Germain as well. On approach, she discovered it was the same man 
who didn't seem to have aged a day in the 50 years that had passed. It is noted that the Count didn't even deny that it was him or play himself off as the son. It's even said that he joked with the Countess that he was indeed over 100 years old. Forty more years, the Count of Saint-Germain was said to travel throughout Europe, never aging and continuously marveling the elite of Europe with his abilities, like his genius on the violin or his painting skills, his deep wallets, his knowledge of medicine, and the fact that he always dined with his peers but never ate. It is said that he only drank wine, which of course he was said to be a connoisseur. The supposed final account of the Count was when he traveled to Hamburg, Germany, and befriended Prince Charles of Hesse-Kassel. St. Germain became a trusted confidant of the prince and lived as a guest in the castle of Eckenfjord. This is where it was rumored he finally died. The only thing that accounts for his death, though, is a local record that states the Count of St. Germain deceased February 27, 1784. The Comtesse de Hermar claims that the Count was there to witness the beheading of Marie Antoinette, October 16, 1793. He would have been close to 100 years old if Google is correct in their estimated year of birth at 1710. Yet, even though the records of his death were found, the Count was continued to be seen all over Europe as soon as a year after his supposed death by none other than Anton Mesmer, the man who pioneered the art of hypnotism said to be taught to him by St. Germain. Then records indicate St. Germain was chosen as a representative for the Freemasons at a convention. Story after story of him appears in written records, and never the man looks older than 45. The Comtesse de Hermar even wrote, I have seen St. Germain again, each time to my amazement. I saw him when the Queen was murdered on the 18th of Brumaire, on the day following the death of the Duc de Angine in January 1815 and on the eve of the murder of the Duc de Berry. The Comtesse wrote this account in 1820. In the year 1902, a man going by Jacques Saint-Germain moved into the prestigious building at the corner of Ursulines and Royal. It is said that he migrated from the south of France and was a descendant of the Count Saint-Germain. His first introduction into New Orleans society was a party he threw, where he invited all the elite of New Orleans, dignitaries and politicians, fed them from a catered menu on the finest china and silverware, yet didn't eat a bite himself. All he did was drink what guests believed to be red wine. This supposedly offended New Orleans' polite society, and Jacques, while immensely rich, never seemed to fit in. He was described as charming highly intelligent and a master of languages and art, but the company he kept and the fact that he was known to party a lot – he loved Bourbon Street – kept him from being accepted by the elitists. Jacques Saint-Germain didn't come back into attention until the police took notice of him. Jacques had picked up a woman in a local pub and taken her back to his home. The young woman later found herself at the police station with a tale that sounds right out of a fantasy novel. She said that St. Germain came to her with alarming speed and strength when she leaned over to inspect some beautiful items on his mantle. With that speed and strength in full use, he pressed her against the mantle and began biting her viciously on her neck. As luck would have it, at that exact moment a few of Jacques' more rowdy friends began banging at his door to lure him out for a drink. 
The pounding distracted Jacques enough for the woman to break away. But instead of trying to make it past Jacques, she decided to throw herself through the second-story window and over the balcony that surrounds the property, to the bricked street below, thus resulting in her legs breaking in a few places. Her desperate screams drew the police and they took her to the hospital and took her statement. Jacques, when questioned that night, stated only that she was drunk and decided to jump. Police asked if Jacques could come down to the station in the morning to give a formal statement. Jacques never appeared at the police station the next day. When they decided to pay him a visit, they found his house was abandoned and most of his things gone. Police took this as an invitation to inspect his home and were confused by what they found. For one, there were bloodstains all over tablecloths in the house, and from what they could tell, they were from different time periods. To top it off, there was absolutely not one piece of food in the house, not even utensils or plates, just a large collection of wine glasses and wine bottles filled with what police believed to be red wine, yet upon taste discovered it was a mixture of wine and blood. The Countess Saint-Germain and Richard Chanfray, the man who claimed to be the Count in the 1970s. Chanfray appeared on television with his claim and supposedly changed lead into gold. Chanfray committed suicide in St. Tropez in 1983. There have been numerous reports, even in present day, that a mysterious figure, sometimes known as Jack, will often harass tourists and locals, displaying amazing speed or strength. Today, New Orleans is known as one of the most violent cities in the U.S., leading the country in murders per capita. But it doesn't stop there. It is also known for mysterious disappearances, which are not based in the low-income districts of New Orleans, but usually focus on tourists and even visiting celebrities. These crimes give the city a dangerous and almost gothic flair and perpetuate the rumors that it might not be drug dealers that are pushing the crime stats through the roof, but maybe a few vampires, one in particular that goes by the name of Jack. If you like what you hear and you want to hear even more, I often post content exclusively for patrons. You can become a patron right now by clicking the Become a Patron button at WeirdDarkness.com or click the link in the show notes. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in future episodes. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true and you can find links in the show notes. The Greystone Mansion Murders was written by Troy Taylor. A Rather Strange Company was written by Sangrina. Catholic Boy, Drug Kingpin, Satanic Cult Leader and Serial Killer was written by Gina DeMuro. Canic Chase Werewolves was posted at ghoststory.co.uk. And The Vampire of New Orleans was posted at coolinterestingstuff.com. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. Find links to both in the show notes. If you do like the show, please leave a review in Apple Podcasts. Doing so helps the show to be seen by others, and I might read your review here in the podcast. By the way, this Saturday, Weird Darkness is a proud sponsor of the Laugh or Die Comedy Fest in Peoria, Illinois. 
$15 admission gets you a full 14 hours of non-stop comedy films and live stand-up comedy. Again, that's this Saturday in Peoria, Illinois. You can get the details on the events page at WeirdDarkness.com. Find me on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and more. I have links to all of my social media at the top of the page at WeirdDarkness.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. This episode of Weird Darkness was brought to you by Send Out Cards. You can mail a real, personalized greeting card without leaving the house or going out to buy stamps. Choose from the hundreds of existing cards on the website or create one of your own, completely from scratch, using your own photos and message. You can even use your own handwriting and signature if you wish. You create it all digitally on the website before it goes to the post office to get mailed. And for an extra special touch, you can add a gift to the card, like a stuffed animal, bakery item, or candy. Try it now absolutely free. I'll pay for it. Go to sendoutcards.com slash weird. Remember the slash weird part. It's the perfect opportunity to create a special Father's Day card. Father's Day is next month. So check it out for yourself. Again, you can try it absolutely free at sendoutcards.com slash weird.